Chapter 28 of The Frozen Pirate. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by K. Hand. The Frozen Pirate by William Clark Russell. Chapter 28 I Strike a Bargain with the Yankee. The captain put his cup down. The bowl was empty. I offered to brew another jorum, but he thanked me and said no, adding significant that he would have no more here, by which he meant that he would brew for himself in his own ship anon. The drink had made him cheerful and good-natured. He recommended that we should go on deck and set about transshipping whilst the weather held, for he was an old hand in these seas and never trusted the sky longer than a quarter of an hour. This here list, says he, wants remedying, and that'll follow our easin' of the hold. Yes, said I, and I should be mighty thankful if some of your men would see all clear aloft for me, that we might start with runnin' riggin' that will travel, capstans that'll revolve, and sails that'll spread. Oh, we'll manage that for you, said he. Truly, she's been bad froze, very bad froze, durned if I ever see a worse freeze. So saying, he called to Bill, who seemed the principal man of the boat's crew, and gave him some directions, and immediately afterwards all the men entered the boat and rowed away to the ship. Whilst they were absent, I carried the captain into the hold and left him to overhaul it. I told him that all the spirits, provisions, and the like were in the hold and lazarette, which was true enough, wanting to keep him out of the run, though, thanks to the precaution I had taken, I was in no fear even if he should penetrate so deep aft. Before he came out, five-and-twenty stout fellows arrived in four boats from the ship, and when we went on deck we found them going the rounds of the vessel, scraping the guns to get a view of them, peering down the companion, overhauling the forecastle well, as I call the hollow beyond the forecastle, and staring aloft with their faces full of grinning wonder. The captain sang out to them, and they all mustered aft. "'Now, lads,' said he, there's a big job before you, a big job for Cape Horn, I mean, and you'll have to slip through it as if you was grease. When done, there'll be a carouse, and I'll warrant ye all such a sup that the most romantic among ye'll never cast another pine in thought in the direction o' your mother's milk. Having delivered this preface, he divided the men into two gangs, one under the boatswain to attend to the rigging, clear the canvas of the ice, get the pumps and the capstans to work in, and see all ready for getting sail on the schooner, the other under the second mate to get tackles aloft and break out the cargo, taking care to trim ship whilst so doing. They fell to their several jobs with a will. Tis the habit of our countrymen to sneer at the Americans as sailors, affirming that if ever they win a battle at sea, it is by the help of British renegades. But this I protest. After witnessing the smartness of those Yankee whalemen, I would sooner charge the English than the Americans with lubberliness, came the nautical merits of the two nations ever before me to decide upon. They had the hatches open, tackles aloft, and men at work below, whilst the mariners of other countries would have been standing, looking on, and jawing upon the course to be taken. Some overran the fabric aloft, clearing, cutting away, pounding, making the ice fly in storms. Others sweated the capstans till they clanked. Others fell to the pumps, working with hammers and kettles of boiling water. The wondrous old schooner was never busier. No, not in the heyday of her flag, when her guns were blazing and her people yelling. I doubt whether even a man of war could have given this work the dispatch the whaler furnished. 
She had eight boats and sixty men, and every boat was afloat and alongside us, ready to carry what she could to the ship. I wished to help, but the captain would not let me do so. He kept me walking and talking, asking me scores of questions about the schooner, and all so shrewd that without appearing reserved, I professed to know little. The great show of clothes puzzled him. He also asked if the crucifix in the cabin was silver. I said I believed it was, fetched it, and asked him to accept it, saying if he would give me the smallest of his boats for it, I should be very much obliged. Oh, yes, says he, you can have a boat. The men would not sail with you without a boat. And after weighing the crucifix without the least exhibition of veneration in his manner, he put it in his pocket, saying he knew a man who would give him a couple hundred dollars for the thing on his telling him that the Pope had blessed it. Ay, but, says I, how do you know the Pope has blessed it? Then I'll bless it, cried he. Why, am I a cold Johnny Cake that my blessing ain't as good as another man's? I was glad I had hidden the black flag, I mean, that I had stowed it away in the cabin of the Frenchman after he was dead. The Yankee needed but the sight to make his suspicions of the original character of the Boca del Dragon flame up, and you may suppose that I was exceedingly anxious he should not be sure that the schooner had been a pirate, lest he might have been tempted to scrutinize her rather more closely than would have been agreeable to me. He asked me if I had met with any money in her, and I answered evasively that in searching the dead man on the rocks I had discovered a few pieces in his pocket, but that I had left them, being much too melancholy and convinced of my approaching end to meddle with such a useless commodity. From time to time he would quit me to go to the hatch and sing down orders to the second mate in the hold. How many casks he meant to take I did not know. When he asked me how much I would give, I replied, Leave me enough to keep me ballasted. That will satisfy me. The high swell demanded caution, but they managed wonderfully well. They never swung more than three casks into a boat, and with this cargo she would row away to the ship that lay hove too close, and the men in her hoisted the casks aboard. The wind remained light till half-past three, then freshened a bit, though all hands had knocked off at noon to get dinner, and a fine meal I gave them of ham, tongue, beef, biscuits, wine, and brandy. By half-past three they had eased the hold of ten boatloads of casks, besides clearing out the whole of their clothes from the forecastle, along with as much of the bedding as we did not require. And I began to think that my Yankee intended to leave me a clean ship to carry home, though I durst not remonstrate. Yet was my turn handsomely served, too. The pumps had been cleared and tried, and found to work well, and, which was glad news to me, the well found dry. The running rigging had been overhauled, and it traveled handsomely. The sails had been loosed and hoisted and lowered again, and the canvas found in good condition. The jibboom had been run out and the stays set up. A stock of fresh water had been examined and found plentiful, and the casks in the head brought out and secured on the main deck. In short, the American boatswain had worked with the judgment and care of a master rigger, of a great artist in ropes, booms, and sails, and the schooner was left to my hands as fit for any navigation as the whaler that rose and fell on our quarter. But as I have said, at half-past three in the afternoon, the breeze began to sit in dark curls upon the water, and there was evidence enough in the haziness in the west, and in the loom of the shoulders of vapor in the dark blue obscure there, to warrant a sackful for this capful presently. I reckon, says the captain to me, after looking into the west, that we best knock off now. There's snow and wind yonder, and we'd better all see snug while there's time. He called to one of the men to tell the second mate to come up from below and get the hatches on, and bringing me to the rail, he pointed to a boat and asked if that would do. I said yes, and thanked him heartily for the gift, which was handsome, I must say, 
the boat being a very good one, though to be sure he had got many times its value out of the schooner, and a party of men were forthwith told off to get the boat hoisted and stowed. "'Now, Mr. Rodney,' said the captain, standing in the gangway, "'how can I serve you further?' "'Sir,' said I, "'you are very obliging. Two things I stand sadly in need of, a chart of these waters and a chronometer.' "'I'll send you a chart,' said he. "'That'll carry you as high as San Roque. "'But I've only got one chronometer, sir, and can't spare him.' "'Well, then,' said I, "'if when you get aboard you'll give me the time by your chronometer, "'I'll set my watch by it. "'But I'll thank you very much for the chart.' The tracings below are as shapeless as the moon setting in a fog. You shall have the chart, said he, and then called to Wilkinson and the two negroes. Lads, said he, you're quite content, I hope? They answered yes. You've all three a claim upon me for the amount of what's owing you, he said, and when you turn up at New Bedford, you shall have it. That's square. I see fifteen hundred dollars a man on this job, if so be as you don't broach too thirstily as you go along. Mr. Rodney, Joe here's a steady, spectable man, and he'll make you a good mate. Cromwell and Billy Pitt are black only in their hides, all else as good as white. He then shook me by the hand, and calling a farewell to Wilkinson and the Negroes, scrambled into the chains and dropped into his boat, very highly satisfied, I make no doubt, with the business he had done that day. A boat's crew were left behind to help us make sail but the weather looking somewhat wild in the west, with the red light of the sun among the clouds there, and the dark heave of the swell running into a sickly crimson under the sun, and then glowing out dusky again, I got them to treble reef the mainsail and hoist it, and then thanking them, advised them to be off. Then putting Cromwell to the tiller, I went forward with the others and set the topsail and the foretosail, the spirit sail, lying furled, which would be show enough of canvas till I saw what the weather was to be like. I kept the topsail aback, waiting for a boat to arrive with my chart, and in a few minutes the boat we had sheared returned with what I wanted. Meanwhile they were shortening sail on the whaler, and though she was no beauty, yet I tell you, I found her as picturesque as any ship I had ever beheld, as she lay with her main top-gallant sail clued up, her topsail yards on the caps, and the heads of men nodding the reef points showing black over the white cloths, her hull floating up out of the hollow and flinging a wet orange gleam to the west a tumble of creamy foam about her to rolling, shadows like the passage of phantom hands hurrying over her sails to the swaying of her masts, and the swelling sea darkling from her into the east. I hollowed my hands, and hailing the captain, who was on the quarter-deck, asked him for the time by his chronometer. He flourished his arm and disappeared, and presently returning shouted to know if I was ready. I put the key in my watch and answered yes, and then he gave me the time. My watch, though antique, was a noble piece of mechanism, and I have little doubt as trustworthy as his chronometer. But I was careful to let it lie snug in my hand. I did not want the negro at the tiller nor the others to see it. They would wonder that so fine a jeweled piece as this should be in the possession of the second mate of a little brig, and it was my business to manage that they never should have cause to wonder at anything in that way. The dusk of the evening came quick out of the east, and the wind freshened with a long cry in our rigging, as if the eastern darkness was a foe it was rushing out of the west to meet. I brought the schooner north-north-east by my compass, and watched her behavior anxiously. The swell was on the quarter, and the wind and sea a trifle abaft the larboard beam. She leaned a little to the weight of her clothes, but was surprisingly stiff considering how light she was. 
Wilkinson and the negro came and stood by my side. The sea broke heavily from the weather bow, and the water roared white under the lee bends and spread astern in a broad wake of foam. The whaler did not brace his yards up till after we had started, and now hung a pale, faint mass in the windy darkness on the quarter. A tincture of rusty red hovered like smoke colored by the furnace that produces it in the west, but the night had drawn down quick and dark. The washing noise of the water was sharp, the wind piercingly cold. Each sweep of the schooner's masts to windward was followed by a dull roaring of the blast rushing out of the hollows of the canvas, and she swung to the seas with wild yaws, but with regularity sufficient to prove the strict government of the helm. But it was being at sea, homeward bound, too. There was no wish of mine engendered by my hideous loneliness on the ice, by my abhorred association with a Frenchman, that I could not refer to as, down to this moment, gratified. My heart bounded. My spirits could not have been higher had this ocean been the Thames, and yonder dark flowing hills of water, the banks of Erith and the Gravesend shore. I turned to the three men. My lads, said I, you prove yourselves fine, bold fellows by thus volunteering. Do not fear. If God guides us home, to my home I mean, you shall find a handsome account in this business. Six more chaps would have joined had the old man been willin', said Wilkinson. But best as it is, master, though she's a trifle short-handed. Why, yes, said I, but being fore and aft, you know, it isn't as if we got courses to hand and topsails to reef. Aye, aye, that's de truth, cried Billy Pitt. I tore to dat. Fore and aft makes de difference. I don't guess I should have volunteer had she been a brig. There are four of us, said I. You are my chief mate, Wilkinson. Choose your watch. I choose Cromwell, said he. He was in my watch aboard the whaler. Very well, I exclaimed. And this being settled, and both Negroes declaring themselves good cooks, we arranged that they should alternately have the dressing of our victuals, that Wilkinson should have the cabin next to mine, and the Negroes the one in which the Frenchman had slept, one taking the other's place as he was relieved. I asked Wilkinson what he thought of the schooner. He answered that he was watching her. "'There's nothing to find fault with yet,' said he. "'She's a whale at rolling, certainly. "'I guess she walks, though. "'I reckon she's had enough of the sea like me "'and's got scent of the land in her nose. "'I guess old Noah wasn't far off when her lines was laid. "'Mebby his sons had the building of her. "'There's something scriptural in her cut. "'How old's she, master?' Fifty years and more,' said I. "'There's nothing particular in dat,' cried Cromwell. I knows a wessel dat am a hundred and four year old. Selt me as I stand. I don't know how the whaler's heading, said I, but this schooner's a canoe if we aren't dropping her. Indeed, she was scarce visible astern, a mere windy flicker hovering upon the pale flashings of the foam. It might be, perhaps, that the whaler was making a more northerly course than we, and under very snug canvas, though ours was snug enough, too. But be this as it may, I was mighty pleased with the slipping qualities of the schooner. I never could have dreamt that so odd and ugly a figure of a ship would show such heels. But I think this. We are too prone to view the handiwork of our sires with contempt. I do not know but that their ships were as fast as ours. They made many good passages. They might have proved themselves fleeter navigators had they had the sextant and chronometer to help them along. Fifty years hence, perhaps, mankind will be laughing at our crudities. 
at us by heaven who flatter ourselves that the art of shipbuilding and navigation will never be carried higher to the pitch to which we have raised them cromwell being at the tiller i told billy pitt to go below and get supper instructing him what to dress and how much to melt for a bowl for as you know there was nothing but spirits and wine to season our repasts with i saw cromwell grin widely into the binnacle candle flame when he heard me talk of ham tongue sweetmeats marmalade and the like for supper together with a can of hot claret and knowing sailor's nature middling well i did not doubt that the fare of the schooner would bring the three men more into love with the adventure than even the reward that was to follow it i had noticed that the bundles which had been sent from the whaler as belonging to the poor fellows were meagre enough and showed indeed like the end of a long voyage and i detained billy pitt a minute whilst i told them that there was a handsome stock of clothes in the cabin together with linen boots and other articles of that sort that though the coats breeches and waistcoats were of bright colour and old-fashioned they would keep them as warm as if they had been cut by a tailor of to-day these things said i you can wear at sea keeping your own clothes ready to slip on should we be spoken or to wear when we arrive in england to-morrow they shall be divided among you and they will become your property the suit you saw me in to-day is all that i shall need both negroes burst into a most diverting laugh of joy on hearing this nothing delights a black man more than colored apparel they had seen the clothes in the forecastle and guessed the kind of garments i meant to present them with whilst supper was getting i walked the deck with wilkinson both of us keeping a bright lookout for it was blowing fresh the darkness lay thick about us there might be ice near us and the schooner was storming under her reefed mainsail topsail and staysail through the hollow seas thundering with a great roaring seething noise into the trough and lifting to the foaming slope with her masts wildly aslant i talked to my companion very freely being anxious to find out what kind of person he was and i must say that there was something in his conversation that impressed me very favourably he told me that he had a wife at new bedford that he was heartily sick of the sea and that he hoped the money he would get by this adventure added to his lay would enable him to set up for himself ashore well i said we will see to-morrow what cargo captain tucker has left us but that you may be under no misapprehension wilkinson if we are fortunate enough to bring the ship safely to england i will enter into a bond to pay you five hundred pounds sterling for your share one week after the date of our arrival he answered that if he could get that sum he would be a made man for life but it's too much to expect sir says he i told him that he had no idea of the value of the cargo the wine and spirits were of such a quality i would stake my interest in the schooner in their fetching a large sum of money that'll depend said he on how much the captain left us he helped himself freely i answered but we are well off too you shall judge to-morrow then there's the schooner as she stands besides a noble stock of stores of all kinds sails ropes tools ammunition and several chests of small arms i tell you i will give you five hundred pounds for your share his satisfaction was expressed by his silence but continued i we must act with judgment what we have we must keep are the negroes trustworthy men yes they are honest fellows i wouldn't have shipped with them else we shall not require much for ourselves said i and the rest will batten down and keep snug there'll be some manoeuvring needed in order to come off clear with this booty when we arrive but there's plenty of time to think that over 
and our business till then is to look after the ship and pray for luck to keep clear of anything hostile. And then we fell to other talk, in the course of which he told me he was an Englishman born, but having been pressed into a man-o'-war, deserted her at Halifax and made several voyages in American ships. He was wrecked on the Peruvian coast and became a beachcomber, and then got a berth in a whaler. He married at New Bedford and sailed with Captain Tucker. This was his second whaling trip, he said, and he wanted no more. I told him I was glad to learn that he was a countryman of mine, but not surprised. His speech was well larded with Americanisms. But, said I, the true twang is wanting, and, added I, laughing, I should know you for Hampshire for all your reckons and guesses if I had to eat you, should I be mistaken. The press gang's the best friend the Yankees has, he said a little sheepishly. Do any man suppose I hadn't sooner hail from my native town Southampton than from New Bedford? Half the American folks is made up of Yankees who'd prove hearts of oak if it wasn't for the press. His candor gratified me as showing that he already looked upon me as a shipmate to be trusted, and, as I have said, this first chat with a man left me strongly disposed to consider myself fortunate in having him as an associate. End of chapter 28